Good morning, guys. My name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're just joining us, good morning. We're continuing on our Philippians series. And and one thing Paul does in his letters, usually, is that he, he has an introduction. And then he goes into talking about these theological concepts, things that actually apply to churches that are undergoing persecution. A lot of these letters that we read in the New Testament are to churches who are experiencing a lot of persecution of existing in a world that is, is opposed to Jesus being King and Lord. And so Paul has unpacked a bit of what he's talking about in Philippians, about who Jesus is, the mindset we are to have. And he does this in a lot of his letters. And then he usually makes a shift And this shift is not to say, now on to something else. The shift is to say, in light of everything I've talked about, in light of this exposition of these theological concepts, this is now how you are to think. And we'll see for Paul, a lot of his thinking is actually in light of what he's also been meditating upon theologically. It's it's moved down into his heart and it becomes the way he sees his world. And I think one of the things we notice about our society and the way we talk about things is it's often in a way of saying, what? These questions that start to scratch at the surface of maybe what's above the, like above the roots. So if you imagine a plant, you have all these roots and so all these beliefs about who you are, about the nature of reality, about the way that you view um, marriage and work and all those. And then they surface themselves in these different opinions they, that we have. So for example, you could say, uh, what do you think about climate change? What do you think about The Last Jedi? What do you think about the roads in Fullerton? So that's one for me, the, the roads in Fullerton. Uh, I've noticed more having a child, how there's a lot of potholes and they definitely need some help. So uh, these are questions that like are ingrained. These are questions that ask and sort of scratch at the surface of what's going on underneath. They surface themselves and, and what do I think? And this is a pattern that is ingrained in us early on in society. We're taught through our education. It's about what you know, that we focus on that. It's more about what facts do you know. We're able to, to remember all these different things about history and science and math and so on. We're, we're taught to think in what? But under the surface, subconsciously, we're also being taught how we think. We're being taught how to view the world, how to view everything in reality. And this is a pattern that we can also apply to God, that when we come to scriptures, sometimes we can just say, what can I know about God? What scriptures can I memorize? And we just think in in questions of what, and not necessarily always in questions of how am I thinking about God? How am I thinking about myself? And recent studies have found that when we make that shift to how we're thinking, when we make that shift to how I view the world, that actually changes things like how we're feeling. It changes whether we're happy or not. And so, for example, Michelle Kwan, the figure skater who got second in the, in the Winter Olympics, actually felt um, okay about getting second. And to put it into context, people that get first in the Olympics get the gold medal. They say they're super happy. People that get, that get the bronze medal, ah, oh, they're decently happy. They got a medal. They didn't get fourth place. But second place, people who get the silver medal are some of the most depressed athletes there are. If you look at different studies and pictures, you'll notice the person getting second place looks miserable to even be there. But for Michelle Kwan, getting second actually wasn't that big of a deal. And when people ask her, like, why are you okay with second? She would explain the way that she was taught to train about how her parents raised her to be um, just thankful for her life, to be thankful for even being a part of something, how she was even celebrating her teammate that got first. So the way that she's thinking about what does it mean to compete, how she sees her practice, all those things, means that when she gets second, it's not that big of a deal. So how we think is important. Like what's, The questions we have to ask ourselves is what thoughts, what stories, what beliefs drive the what I'm thinking. It's sort of getting underneath the surface of how we think. 
And so for myself, even recently, we were on vacation in Morro Bay, and um, I was very stressed out about being on vacation. I was not having a good time, and I was really, really stressing Hannah out. When, I, when you feel that tension, when you're around someone who's stressed, usually you feel stressed yourself. So Hannah's like, what's going on with this guy? And she said later, it's like Edna from Incredible is just wanted to say, pull yourself together. <laughs> but fortunately, she didn't get that way. She was patient with me. Um, and I realized through her questions of like her asking like, what is going on? Like, what, how are you thinking about these things that I hadn't adjusted my expectations of what vacation would be like having a small child, of what vacation looks like when you can't go here and go there and go there and there, but rather changing my expectation to say, today we're going to go to a coffee shop and we'll see what happens. Just like, <laughs> and that's it. But by changing that expectation, it was helpful to then approach vacation. It was helpful to approach those things. And so she was asking a question to get at what's the roots of what my expectations are of how I feel vacation should be. And by changing those, it, it changed how I felt about it. And so for Paul, he's getting at the same thing. And my hope this morning is that we see that as Paul's meditated upon who, who King Jesus is, that that's permeated his life. So then when he talks about his own life, when he talks about the way that he sees the world, that's changed the how he thinks. Um, my hope is that we can distinguish our what our what and our how is, and that we can see that, um, that when we get trapped in self-righteousness, it can be a poison that ensnares us and traps us. And Paul's very passionate about recognizing where we're being self-righteous, and he's very forward in taking that route out. So for, for Paul, Jesus has become how Paul thinks, and it's changed his life forever. So I'm going to be reading out of Philippians 1, a 3, 1 through 11, not Philippians 1. We're already past that. So I'll be reading from Philippians 3 out of ESV. You can follow along on the screens. And I'm going to be substituting throughout this sermon instead of saying Christ, saying King Jesus. And I think that's helpful, not because it's just because of Kanye, but there's, a, there's an important distinction. I think oftentimes we see Jesus Christ and we assume Christ is the last name. But I think it's also helpful to remind ourselves from time to time that Christ is referring to Lord, referring to King. So Jesus the Christ, Jesus the King. So it's just a helpful practice from time to time. So let me pray for us before we begin. Jesus, we thank you that you are King. We thank you that you are Lord. We thank you that you are in the business of changing how we see the world. That Holy Spirit, that's something that you do, that you transform our minds. I thank you that you desire for us to become more like you because you have declared us new creations. You have made us new creations. So I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, um, would you settle in us a sense of who we are in you and help us to see where we're still drawn to who we are in the world. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are their circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, King Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ, knowing the King. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing, knowing King Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain King Jesus and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that's what, that which comes through faith in the King, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So one thing I want to do this morning is, is actually take some time to walk through these verses. So when we look at the Bible, it is, it is something that's for us, but it's not to us, meaning that the Bible is good for teaching us how to be godly. It is good for teaching us life. But we're not always the audience of the text. We're not the main people that Paul is writing to. So I think by looking at what's going on here, it helps us to enrich our understanding of what the text is saying. Of course, you can read the text without knowing those things, and the Holy Spirit is still moving inside of you. So you don't need to go through this exercise, but I think it's helpful when we start to peel back the layers of what Paul's getting at to give us a deeper understanding. And so I think it's helpful that we do that. And then we'll sort of take another step back and say, in light of what Paul is talking about, what does this mean for us today? So the first thing that's helpful that we're going to dive into is we're going to talk about the Judaizers. The Judaizers are Messianic Jewish believers or Christians that believe salvation and access to King Jesus and communion with God was only available through adherence to food laws, Sabbath, and circumcision. And the question that they're asking themselves, these believers, is what does it mean to be distinct? That when they look at their own history as a people, they've seen these things like circumcision as a very physically distinct action about the way they live as being what separates them. So I think it's easy for us to assume like, oh yeah, these guys are just totally wrong, but they're asking good questions about what does this mean in light of what King Jesus has accomplished? What does this mean in light of who we are as a people? And Paul has a run-in with the Judaizers, and we can read more about that in the book of Galatians. And I encourage you to take a look, because he really goes after these systems of thought that are unhelpful. And then his goal in this is not just to say, totally get out of there. He's someone who sees himself still as Jewish. But seeing himself as a Jewish person, Jesus is the Messiah. He has fulfilled all of these things. In light of what Jesus has accomplished, everything's different. In light of Jesus fulfilling the Mosaic Covenant, one does not need to adhere to all of these little stipulations in order to have right standing with God. Jesus has accomplished that, and you have right standing through him. So Paul has very forward language because he wants people to understand what does it mean to be in Jesus, and what does it mean to be distinct as a Christian? It's being in Jesus, and then those things flowing out about how we live are distinctions, but circumcision, adherence to the Sabbath in a very specific way, adherence to all the food laws is not how that's done. So to give us a sense of Paul's passion about all of this, I want to read from Galatians 5, 1 to 12. I'm going to be reading out of the NIV just because I think it captures some of the passion of what Paul's talking about here and his, his frustration with the Judaizers. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, King Jesus will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the law, the whole law. You who are trying to be justified, justified by faith have been alienated from Jesus. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in King Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. And I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. 
brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. So here we go. Paul's saying, you know, promoting castration and saying, you know, you want circumcision? Get rid of the whole thing. And so Paul, <laughs> Paul's very passionate. I, that's what I like about this is he has very strong language. And as we'll see later, it's because he cares very much that Gentile believers are not putting themselves back in slavery because they're already free in Christ. And we'll talk about that more later. And as for just more of a context for this, the council in Jerusalem had already decided Gentile believers didn't need to be circumcised. It was already decided by the early church, and yet there's this whole group of believers, these Judaizers, who are saying, this is what the Gentiles need to do. So Paul's even more frustrated because it's something, it's like, guys, we've talked about this. Guys, we've already decided. What are we doing here? Why are we still pressing the issue? So that's uh, helpful to know sort of as we talk about this next, next portion of Philippians. These guys had not arrived in Philippi yet, but Paul knew they weren't too far behind. So he starts out with a warning with, look out for the dogs, watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evildoers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. And so here he's just flipping a lot of language on his head. Uh, Jews would refer to Gentiles as dogs. Now they're the dogs. The, the, Jewish, the, the Judaizers referred to themselves as the good works people. And Paul is saying, you're the bad works people. You're the evildoers. And likening this obsession with circumcision, this obsession with this physical distinction, as just a pagan cult, a pagan cult ritual. You're just mutilating your flesh. You're just cutting yourself. It means nothing. Those who are circumcised are the ones who worship God by the Spirit. The, those who worship in the Spirit are the ones who have a circumcision of the heart. So Paul's sort of taking that vision in the Old Testament, the promise of the new covenant of a circumcision of the heart, and saying Jesus has fulfilled that. Our Messiah is here. And if you're truly Jewish in this sense, this is, you know what this means. You've read the same text I've read. And this means that for those to be um, circumcised of the heart are those who worship the Spirit in truth. And then Paul goes on to talk about his outward status. He goes on to talk about himself being a Jew of Jews. And he goes on to talk about the different features about his life and his history. And I had a friend in college who, who felt very uncomfortable with passages like this. He felt like Paul was just kind of humble bragging here, that he was sharing, like, I've met Jesus, but let me tell you about who I am. Let me tell, let me tell you about what I've done. And, and almost it seemed like uncomfortable, like, who is this Paul? What is he getting at? It seems like he's more full of himself in this sense. And I think um, without knowing a certain, like what Paul's getting at, maybe on face value, it seems like Paul's just bragging about the things that he's done. But one thing that's helpful to know is that within Roman and Jewish culture at the time, there was a huge culture of boasting, of boasting in the things you had accomplished. And as an honor and shame society, your status and your standing in society was incredibly important. So often what would happen is people would would give their own honor, would speak very well of themselves to establish themselves as a man of honor. And so to give two examples, here's an example from a Caesar Augustus, and then I'll read one from Josephus, who was a famous Jewish historian. So here's an example of uh, culture, boasting yourself within culture. Twice I have celebrated triumphal ovations, and the three times I have driven triumphal chariots, and I have been hailed 30, 21 times as victorious general Although the whole Senate voted me more triumphs, from all of which I abstained, I have deposited the laurel of my facades in the Capitoline Temple in fulfillment of the vows which I had taken in each war, on account of affairs successfully accomplished by land and sea by me or through my deputies. Under the auspices, the Senate 55 times decreed that thanksgiving should be offered to the immortal gods. Moreover, the days during which thanksgiving has been offered by decree of the Senate have amounted to 890. So before we just say, like, oh... Those pagans, of course they're full of themselves. Let's see, no, Josephus, being a Jewish historian, 
you'll hear that he's uh, very much boasting of himself. My family is of no ignoble one, tracing its descent pedigree far back to priestly ancestors. Different races, claim, uh, different races base their claim to nobility on various grounds, which us, with us a connection with the priesthood is a hallmark of an illustrious line. Not only, however, were my ancestors priests, but they belonged to the first of the 24 courses, a peculiar distinction, and to the most eminent of its constitute clans. And this goes on and on. And obviously this is more than 250 characters, so this wouldn't fit in a tweet. But you can imagine some of this language, you're like, I think I've read this on Twitter before from different people. But here we see Paul subverts this. Paul's very aware of what's going on. He knows the culture that he's a part of. He's a man of culture, knowing where he's coming from. But he says, this is worldliness, and I'm going to subvert that. And he even goes so far to say, here's my honor, here's my status, but this is shame for the sake of knowing King Jesus. I count this as garbage. I count this as rubbish. Very, very strong language that I can't say in church from the front. I count this as something that is not worth holding to for what the world, as Paul says elsewhere, calls the cross foolishness, for the shame, from the world's perspective, of holding on to King Jesus. For his, what the world sees as shame is actually his honor. That's what he holds fast to. Knowing Jesus is where his honor rests. So Paul's a man who subverts worldliness. And the question to us is, where are the places within our culture where we can subvert that worldliness? Where do we see in culture people holding fast to where we can be people who, who hold fast to Christ and not hold fast to that worldliness, as we see Paul doing here with his boasting. And so for Paul, the only platform is the crucified king of all creation. That's his only status as the crucified king. And then he goes on to talk about having his faith through Christ, through knowing King Jesus, the power of his resurrection, and mutual belonging is suffering. So as, we'll, as he goes on to say that his faith, his allegiance to God, his trust is only in Jesus, in Jesus' faithfulness. That is where all of his hope lies. It is not in what he can do himself. It is not in what he can attain in his own strength, but rather what Christ has accomplished on the cross. What the king has done is what matters to him most. And, and in that also, he comes under knowing King Jesus, that that being the most important thing about his life is knowing Jesus. That eternal life, as Jesus says in John, is knowing him. That's where eternal life rests, is in knowing Jesus. And the good news that we have, the gospel, is knowing Jesus and, and having this relationship with him. And oftentimes, I think, as we talk about the gospel, we often, we're front-footed with salvation, we're front-footed with redemption, but here what Paul's implying is that, no, we're, we should be front-footed with King Jesus, with knowing him, with having this relationship with him, and salvation, redemption, is an implication of knowing him. It's available through what he has accomplished, but the good news for Paul is knowing Jesus. The good news is the king who is crucified, the king who is over all creation, the king who is able to make us new creations, the Messiah of the world. And the good news is that we get to know him and then we have forgiveness of sins through him, that we are made right with God as we put our trust, as we put our faith, our allegiance is only in him. That is how we're forgiven. That's how we have salvation because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. Our sins are forgiven. And through, and through um, his resurrection, we have the Holy Spirit, the power of his resurrection, the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, who's making us into new creations, who's growing the fruit of the Spirit, that as Jesus says, abide in me as I abide in you, that as we abide in Jesus, he's, he's creating new soil, that he's creating this, these trees that grow and produce fruit. And that's what Jesus promises, that as we abide with him, there'll be new fruit. 
And then there's this whole piece that we're a little uncomfortable with, this mutual belonging and his suffering. And that's, a, I think, a piece as Americans we kind of just brush past of like, oh yeah, mutual belonging is suffering. But that, that sharing, that koinonia is that we're supposed to identify with Christ and his suffering, to share in that. And I think as we heard this morning for our brothers and sisters around the world, that's a very real reality for them. And as Paul is, pre, is proclaiming Jesus as king, that's going in the face of everything the society said was, was who was king? Caesar is king. Caesar is Lord. No, Jesus is king. And he's getting a lot of persecution, but he sees that what he's going through is actually something that Jesus promised that we would see that in this life, we experience joy. We experience all this goodness, but we can't experience pure joy without having experienced this suffering. That as we, as we go through suffering, as we see persecution, as we go through those things, and even in our own life, even as we're following Jesus, um, that may look just uh, like we're like Christ is forming us and shaping us, as we experience the, the frustrations of that at times, we, we recognize that we have a Savior who also is no suffering, that he knows those things very well. And for Paul, his suffering was very much because he's proclaiming Christ. He was thrown into prison. So Paul's writing this from prison. He got to prison somehow. He didn't just show up in prison. So he's in prison for having proclaimed Jesus, and yet he sees his suffering as part of what it means to follow Jesus. So as we follow Jesus, that's something that we should um, be prepared for, to realize that's a reality, that suffering is not foreign to the Christian, is not foreign to the Christ follower. And that's something that as we're anchored in Christ, that as we anchor ourselves to him in the storm, that he will hold us steadfast, that as we lay hold of him, he lay holds of us, and he'll hold us secure, even in the midst of that suffering. So that's sort of like quickly walking through these verses and seeing what, what Paul's getting at in them. So as we take a step back, my first question then is, how are we thinking? How do we think? Like what, and the first thing with that is, what is your story? And so for Paul, Jesus has become his story. That as we talked about, as Sean reminded us last week, Philippians 2, 6 to 11 has become his mindset for how he sees the world. That's become the driving narrative of his life. What views of the world, your past, your emotional state, drive what you think, the way that you, you approach things, like what things are driving those. We're, we're creatures that do this subconsciously with other things. As we read social media, as we look at the news, these are all things that we do subconsciously without realizing it. But what Paul, I believe what Paul's challenging us in this, and as we see from him, is to say, well, what's actually there? What's growing there? What's the, the fruit, the seeds, the tree? If, if we talk about a tree, what fruit would it bear as we look at the views that we have? And all these things, too, as we start to look at what's going on subconsciously, a question we need to ask ourselves is where is our heart posture? I think it's easy even in talking about these things to lay burdens of judgment and heap those onto ourselves. But Jesus' invitation is to invite the Spirit in to say, search me and know my heart and to answer all these questions or to think about them with an open posture of saying, Lord, what is in me? What do I believe? Please change that where, where it's not of you. And I think one place where we can start in sort of this process of asking what's there and, and, and changing our worldview, changing the, the what's under the surface, is with meditating on what is true of Jesus and what is true of us in Jesus. And meditating on scripture. This is something Paul did in the Bible's like meditation literature. What does that mean? It's something that we, we chew on that we sit with, that's something we return to. It's not a book where you read it cover to cover and flip through it and you say, okay, I've read it. I'm done. I don't need to go back to it. It's something that we revisit. It's something that we allow to permeate our minds and our heart and change the way that we see the world so that its story, the story that it's telling, becomes our story. 
It's something we get to do together. That's one encouragement in this is read it together as a life group. Get together and read scripture with other friends within the community. Read together. Uh, choose a passage to meditate on. Choose a book of the Bible to reread and meditate upon or even one verse just to, to sit with it and say, what does this mean? To let it, you know, move it around in your mind, see what's there, and ask the Holy Spirit to, to open it up to you. And that's something Paul did with, with sitting through the story of Israel, with sitting through the story of Ezekiel, with sitting through all these different prophets. Then as he encounters Jesus, he's saying, oh, this Jesus fits all, he, like it fits all of these things. The way that he talks about Jesus is, is full of these allusions to the Old Testament. It's full of all these different things because Paul has meditated upon it. The Holy Spirit's empowered him and the Holy Spirit is inspiring him as he writes, but these meditations are coming from his own partnering with God and thinking about it. As Nick reminded us a couple weeks ago, the gospel is opposed to earning. It's not opposed to our efforts in that sense, but we can't earn our way to God but we yield to him. We partner with him. And in going through scripture like this, it's something the spirit can begin to use to change and transform our minds. Or even other practical ways to, to open up the gospels and sit down and say, if what I'm reading is true, if what Jesus says about himself, his followers, and this world, this reality that we live in is true, if I believe that Jesus died for my sins, if he was, if he was raised again, if the same spirit that lives in him lives in me as I follow him, if I believe that is actually true, what does this mean for my life now? If I actually don't just read it as like, well, that's nice, but I actually take it like, no, this is serious stuff. What Jesus said is actually true. If I really stop and do that practice of saying that and inviting the spirit into all those things, I think it can begin to break down some of these things. And that's what Paul did, like I mentioned before. Paul is someone who is deeply reveled in the mercy of God, and that allows him to proclaim and display God's mercies and participate in acts of mercy for the common good and the world around him. So then what is the driving narrative of your life? Maybe it's having a good job. Maybe it's being a good parent. Maybe it's finding romantic love or experiencing everything. Or maybe it's trying to read your Bible to feel like God is happy with you or doing all the churchy things and showing up to everything to try to earn favor with God and with others. So self-righteousness gets us nowhere. Self-righteousness replaces the fall. And what do I mean by that? And self, we see in, the, in creation, we see in the beginning, that things like Sabbath, that as God is the God who has order, has rules, these things are not bad. They can set up really helpful ways to live our life, like bumpers, bumpers down um, when, you're, when you're bowling and there's bumpers. The, the bumpers are not there, so you can just ping pong off of them, but it's kind of fun when you're just hitting it off of the bumpers. The reality is you're still trying to go for a strike. The bumpers just can help you. And so in that sense, Sabbath has a purpose. These things had a purpose. And, they, and as even Paul says in Galatians, they weren't always evil. They weren't always intended to be evil in that sense. But what happens is that humanity is invited to, to follow God, to, to choose good and evil, to, and to follow it as God says good and evil is. But humanity says, no, I want to do it. I want to define good and evil in my own terms. I want to define what's right and wrong. I want to make this in my own way. I want to define what it means to come before God. I want to define what it means to earn my way to salvation. And in self-righteousness, we're deciding this is what it means for me to have righteousness. And it's totally foreign to what God says it means to have righteousness. And so to paint a picture of this, I've created a meme. So memes are pictures on the internet 
And they're trying sometimes to communicate a lot of different things, but it's through a few different pictures. So this one is from Hunchback of Notre Dame. How many people have seen Hunchback of Notre Dame Disney movie? There's this part, I don't remember the whole context, it just came to me this morning. So inspiration, whatever you'll call it, maybe it's just my coffee. Um, but there's this character, and he's, he's rolling, he gets set free from his prison. And so in this sense, I'm reminded as a follower of Jesus that we've been set free, that we are free like Paul said in Galatians. And so as we, as we enter out self-righteousness, he, he trips on his cage, and then he falls back in shackles. And so my thought here was our self-righteousness ends up being the stumbling block to us, where, or even with the Judaizers, the stumbling block of if you want to have right relationship with God, you need to be circumcised, you need to follow Sabbath in this way, you need to adhere to all the food laws. So these, these things that lead to self-righteousness, which is Paul's getting at, these self-righteous things become a stumbling block, and we wind up in shackles which is exactly in a lot of other Paul's writings. He talks about this self-righteousness. You're putting yourself in bondage again. And Paul set you free from bondage. You are no longer a slave to sin. You're a slave to Jesus. You're a slave to righteousness, meaning that you are actually free, that the one that you're serving, the one that you're following is Jesus. And in Jesus, you have freedom. So there's no need to put yourself in bondage again. So I thought that meme would kind of help to paint that picture in a different way. So self-righteousness leaves us totally dead on the inside as well. Matthew 23 talks a lot about that. Jesus talking to the Pharisees has very strong language, these seven woes to the Pharisees. And, and sort of the language he uses is he describes, with your self-righteousness, you look great on the outside. Yeah, you're reading your Bible an awful lot. Yeah, you're showing up to things, but on the inside, you're totally dead. There's no life there. You're a whitewashed tomb. Or another image he uses is like you have your favorite mug, you have your favorite, you know, maybe from a coffee shop, maybe it's got like a picture of a cat on it, whatever it is, whatever's on your mug, you have this, but on the inside, it's great, it looks great on the outside, but on the inside, there's so much junk. There's leftover tea and coffee and ice cream and whatever else you're having in your mug. Maybe it's crusty milk, whatever it is. It's just there, it's gross. That's what Jesus is getting at, is our self-righteousness looks great on the outside, but inside it is death. Inside it is nothingness. So Jesus' strong language is because he knows this will kill you. This will kill you. And Jesus' desire is to transform your heart. That as Paul says, he, all these things he has, his status, he counts it as nothing. None of that matters for the sake of knowing Jesus. That our first call is to know Jesus, to put ourselves under him, to abide in him as he abides in us. And these things about how we live, maybe the, the outward expression comes from a deep life of following him. But Paul's desire and Jesus' desire, Paul's desire is to say, look to Jesus. And Jesus' desire is to say, come to me and I will give you rest. Your rest is in me and it's nowhere else. Through our belief and trust with Jesus, we are filled with the Spirit, and that makes us new creations in Jesus as we partner with him in the transforming of our minds, and our life is radically transformed. Righteousness in Jesus, righteousness is already ours in Jesus. Jesus says that you are clean, that you are, you are good, so to speak, that you're right standing with God. I have taken care of that. It's done. Just follow me. You don't need to earn it. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to ever earn it. Jesus says, I have already accomplished it for you, and you cannot accomplish it on your own. It is only through the Spirit that we remember to forget our story, remember to forget those things that we hold as status and honor, and remember to lay hold of the story of Jesus. And Jesus invites us to come as we are. The good news in that is Jesus doesn't say, get your life together and then come and find me. Jesus says, bring that brokenness. Bring that shame. Bring those things to me. Bring your whole self, your whole broken self, to the king that was broken for you on the cross. 
There's no pain, no guilt, and no shame that's too much for him to bear. He invites us to trust him, to follow him, and that is enough to start with. He doesn't leave us there. He does bring the change. He does work through those things, those areas where we we have self-righteousness, those areas where there's that brokenness and that hurt and pain with how we see the world. He'll get to those, and that, that can be a very painful process at times, but he is good. His desire in that is to say, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are forgiven, you are loved, and I am making you into more like myself. I'm making you into who I want you to be. And he is good in that process. And so he's someone that's worth following to. But that initial invitation is in your brokenness. Bring those things before him. Cast all your burdens upon him. How we think has a huge, how we see reality, how we see the world, what we think is important has a huge impact on what we make of the world around us. There are always going to be competing narratives for how we should see reality. And a lot of those narratives lead us to a path of self-righteousness and death. Focusing in on only having a good job, only just making, raising a good family my main priority will lead to sin and death because that will disappoint us. It'll never be able to fully fulfill you. And those are good things, having a good job, um, having, experiencing things. Those don't always have to be bad, but when they become your main driving point, when that becomes your main focus, that leads to sin and death. And Jesus' invitation is, draw to me as your well of life. Draw to me as what you abide in. And I will, I will help you to shape and order those things. As Augustine says, I will order your loves. I will order and focus those things. But oftentimes we want to order and focus our loves on our own. Jesus has overcome sin and death. He is the true Israel that was faithful to the Mosaic covenant. And through his faithfulness to that covenant, there is true life. Jesus' invitation is simply to come to him to submit to his work and place your trust in him. He is faithful to complete the good work that he has started in you. We don't need to hide the way we currently view reality from him. We don't need to hide our self-righteous tendencies from him. We are called to lay them down. May we be a people who stand in wonder and awe of our king, and through the spirit may our minds be transformed so that we too may have this mindset among us, which is already ours in King Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most shameful death there is. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Band, you can come on back up here. Jesus, I thank you that you are King and that you are Lord. I thank you that you are our righteousness, that you have declared us, you have declared us clean, you have declared us forgiveness, forgiven, you have provided us with forgiveness of our sins, um, that you have washed us, that you are making us more into the image of your Son. That our standing with you is not determined by our own efforts, but it's being anchored to you. That who we are is in you. And I pray for us as we, as we worship you, as we stand in awe of what you have done, that you would, um, you would remind us of who we are in you. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this all in your name.